Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. Well, hello there. I'm your communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Thanks for listening. Talk about talk is where you improve your communication skills so you can advance your career and improve your relationships. Whether you're a girl or guy next door, a temptress, a whore, a provocateur, a hot mess, or a survivor. Welcome to episode number 55. This is the second part of a two-part series on archetypes. In the most recent episode, we defined and described archetypes. I challenged us to identify which of 12 common archetypes we personally identify with and which archetype fits best for our brand or our firm. Why might we want to do this? Well, because archetypes are, by definition, universal patterns that exist in our minds. That means they're familiar. And that means they resonate. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest you listen to that one first. It's relatively short, just 23 minutes. Okay, building on this foundation on archetypes, we're now going to focus on a specific context, female pop stars. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Professor Kristen Lieb, whose research focuses on the creation and consumption of popular music. Cool research topic, right? In this podcast, we have the privilege of learning how an academic used her disciplined research to examine something that we might otherwise dismiss as trivial. I mean, it's pop culture, right? I respect Kristen very much as an academic who identifies significant, important insights in her rigorous methods. You'll see exactly what I mean in a minute. After you've listened to this episode, you'll have insights into The Cultural Diamond, a framework developed by sociologist Wendy Griswold and adopted by Kristen as a way to describe the cultural ecosystem that pop stars both influence and are influenced by. You'll also understand the life cycle through which female pop stars can evolve. This is where archetypes come in. Sprinkled throughout this interview, and also, frankly, the last episode, when I focused more generally on archetypes, you'll hear an implicit theme focused on the differences between the career life cycle trajectories available to female versus male musicians. Kristen mentioned to me verbally, and she also directly states in her book, that this is not the focus nor the intention of her book to highlight these gender differences. But still, the differences are so stark. First, and most obviously, the archetypes themselves that are available to females versus males are different. But there's also Kristen's comment about how prolific, successful female musicians typically become labeled a pop star, rarely a rock star. When female indie stars become prolific, their genre disappears. Kristen also highlights how, for female pop stars, sexual attractiveness trumps talent. As Kristen says, quote, the pop star's body was her core asset, and it was her body's extendability into these different entertainment realms that in large part predicted her success. Notably, Kristen's quick to point out that it's not that these female pop stars aren't talented musicians, they certainly are, but that it is their bodies that enable them to grow their brand. Furthermore, in her research and in her book, Kristen chooses to use the terms that the industry insiders use. Here's a list of some of the categories or archetypes that industry insiders use to characterize their respective pop stars. There's the indie star, the good girl or girl next door, the temptress, the whore, the gay icon, the provocateur, the exotic, the legend, the redemption or comeback, the diva, the hot mess, and the survivor. I bet you can readily come up with an image in your mind for each of these categories, right? They're universal patterns. But there's no hero here. 
the common archetype that we spent a lot of time talking about in the previous podcast episode. Furthermore, when Kristen asked each of the industry insiders whether there's a difference between the way that men and women of the popular music star world are presented to the public, their answer? Absolutely. Again, comparing the career trajectories of male versus female pop stars was not the objective of Kristen's research. Still, the differences are stark. Okay, let's get into this. As always, you don't need to take notes while you're listening to this episode. I did that for you. You can easily access them on the talkabouttalk.com website. If you click on podcast and then show notes, you'll be able to read or download a printable summary, links to many of the references we cover, and the full transcript. One more thing, before I introduce Kristen, I just want to thank our mutual friend, Carrie Herman, for suggesting this interview. I met both Kristen and Carrie when we were all research associates at Harvard Business School, writing cases for professors. Those really were the good old days. While I went on to earn my doctorate in business and marketing, Kristen Lieb, whom you'll hear in a moment, went on to earn her PhD in mass communication. At the time, our friend Carrie had already earned a PhD in art history and cultural studies, and she's now the director of the case research and writing group at HBS. I miss you, Carrie, and I want to thank you so much for reconnecting me and Kristen and for suggesting this fascinating topic for a podcast episode. Okay, let me introduce Kristen now. Kristen J. Lieb is an associate professor at Emerson College in Boston. Her interdisciplinary research about the production and consumption of popular music sits at the intersection of media studies, production studies, and gender and sexuality studies. Her writing often investigates how popular music stars are created, branded, popularized, credited, and received. You'll hear us in this interview frequently referencing her book called Gender, Branding, and the Modern Music Industry the social construction of female popular music stars, as well as her TEDx talk called Popular Culture is Teaching the Wrong Lessons about Gender and Sexuality. You can find links to this book and this TEDx talk in the show notes. Here's our conversation. Thank you very much, Kristen, for joining us here today to talk about female pop stars. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with the Grammys. Um, Recently, Billie Eilish was the second artist and the first woman in history to sweep all four categories of the Grammys. Of course, I looked it up and previously in 1981, it was Christopher Cross who did the same thing. But here's my question. Why is Billie Eilish resonating so deeply right now? I think there are a number of reasons she's resonating so deeply right now. First, she sort of represents like the girl who isn't like the others, right? So that's a a position that people like, you know, Pink have sort of held before her, you know, where usually we have the girl next door, you know, kind of look as you look at someone like Britney Spears or Taylor Swift or, you know, any of those uh, types of stars who rose up through the ranks. Every once in a while, you get sort of like a tomboy next door. That's sort of an, an old person language. I'm not quite sure what we'd call that now. But that's sort of what you have in Billie Eilish. Like she's she's very clear about not wanting to play the game of making her artistry about her clothing and things like that, right? She's, she's very actively saying, I kind of want to conceal my body in different ways because I don't necessarily want people to comment on it, right? So this is something that is speaking back to a number of cultural tensions right now. So that sort of makes her different. The fact that she is talking about very taboo subjects, I think also makes her resonate. 
if you think about her big hits, Bad Guy, well, A, she's 17 when that album comes out, so she's presumably younger than that when the album is made, and she's talking about having bruises on both her knees for you and being a might-seduce-your-dad type, right? So this is going to set alarm bells off, you know, for some people. Is she playing a role? Is she trying to be sort of provocative because she's suggesting sort of a sophistication about sex, like when she's not yet reached the age of consent? Or are we concerned that, you know, maybe her collaboration with her older brother, who's like 21 or so, or 22 at the time, is it his influence wanting to construct her image in this way for the delight of the male gaze or something like that? Um, So there's so much that's so complicated and, you know, reasonable people can disagree about whether this is sort of autobiography or uh, a performance or, you know, perhaps a mixture of both as is true for so many artists. But I I think she's pushing cultural buttons that make her very uh, interesting. The other thing I should mention about her is if you watch her videos, right, if you watch her Bury a Friend video, you know, there's all kinds of imagery. I show this in my class and my students take it to be like a horror film as you watch it. And they were sort of commenting on all of the images, like gloved hands coming for her, syringes coming from her, images that evoke different thoughts. But then I asked, did anybody listen to the lyrics, right? Because throughout that song, she's saying, I want to end me. I want to end me. I want to end me. So if we pivot over to Demi Lovato for a minute... She performs at the Grammys, the same Grammys, this song called Anyone. And she's like literally crying as she performs and she's singing lines like, you know, I told secrets till my my throat was sore. And she keeps returning to this idea, but nobody's listening to me. And you dig back into that story and that was written uh, right before or right after an overdose in 2018, right? So what both of these artists are representing to me is that we've culturally turned the corner from declaring young women who struggle with mental health or addiction problems in public as hot messes, and we're now sort of constructing them as more triumphant survivors, But, you know, there are questions we can ask ourselves about whether being so personally vulnerable in public is something that's sustainable for a young star. Wow, there is so much to unpack there. I love your triumphant survivors comment. And it reminded me of a conversation that I had with Professor Jerry Zaltman. And he's talking about the typical storyline of the hero's journey, which is often associated with a male right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. here we are talking about female pop stars. So that's interesting. And another one of my favorite things that you said was, is this autobiography or performance? I mean, wow, I I definitely want to get into that. But before we do, let's just back up. What is a pop star? Probably that definition has changed radically in recent years. So I look at someone who is at the absolute top of the music industry game. And so historically that meant, you know, record sales and and awards and and notoriety and so on. And now obviously record sales are far less important than they used to be, but um, certainly streaming has come along. So many measures of pop star success and look at both uh, sales and streams now. But for female pop stars, music has been a tertiary concern for so long. And I hate saying that, but that's, that's sort of where all of my, my research has led me. When I was first doing this work as a dissertation, prior to writing the first edition of my book, I was sort of concluding through interviews with music industry professionals who make and popularize female pop stars that 
a dominant theme was that the pop star's body was her core asset, right? And it was her body's extendability into all these different entertainment realms. So what I mean by that is I think all these women are actually talented musicians. I think a lot of people like to take that away from them. But I think more than being a talented musician, you have to be talented across so many different entertainment realms in order to sort of hit the mark of being a pop star, as opposed to, say, an indie star who makes music and is known for her music, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, she is someone who has to be, like, interesting enough for all kinds of, like, celebrity publications to want to cover her. She's probably going to have some sort of reality television show. She's probably going to have a fragrance line. She's probably going to have a clothing line, if not multiple clothing lines, She's probably going to be incredibly dominant and influential on social media. She might have her likeness or her song sort of included in games. Um, she's probably working with consumer brands. She's probably working with music supervisors to some extent to get her, her songs into television programs and film. She's probably talking with other stars about how to trade target markets, for lack of a, of a better way of saying it. You know, let me, let me court your fans while you court mine through this collaboration. Things like that. Obviously, you know, sales and streaming are all part of it, but, but more than that, it's, it's sort of uh, cultural influence at this point. I started listing all of the jobs that female pop star does. And then when you said they're a collaborator with others, I thought this is exactly like the job of a podcaster, with the exception <laughs> of dancing and singing. Exactly. And I should say, you know, dancing, being able to create a spectacle, right? Because that's a huge part of it, too. Right, right. right. Can you share with us how you conducted the research for your book? I, you know, began with interviews with uh, industry professionals who like make and popularize pop stars. Who makes these people and like, what do they think about as they make them and, and what are the, you know, consequences and outcomes and so on. And so I decided to identify and interview people who inhabited all different types of roles. Like, so I was looking at like journalists and publicists and artist managers and people who worked at record labels and photographers and people like that, because I thought they all had something to do with the way we come to understand these figures. That is a beautiful segue into the cultural diamond, which sure. is um, a critical framework that you use in your book. Can you describe it? Sure. Um, this is a uh, framework created by a sociologist uh, named Wendy Griswold, and I thought it was incredibly useful, and I think it is incredibly useful. I, in fact, use it every term in my in my classes as a as a starting point, as a way of understanding pop star influence and influences. And what I mean by that is, at the top of the diamond, you have the social world. So if I look at, I'm just picking at random, but if I look at Christina Aguilera, so Christina Aguilera, as a woman who lives in the United States culture in in 20. 2020, knows what she gets rewarded for and punished for as a woman, right? So that's without her being a pop star or anything, that's sort of her just being a participant in the social world, right? Yep. So other points of the diamonds would be the sort of producer or handler sort of point on the diamond. And these are like all of the people who influence Christina Aguilera, like people who might weigh in about how she's singing or how she's dancing or a theme she's talking about, or, you know, when she was on The Voice, like how she wanted to represent herself there, whether she wants to do a collaboration. Anyone who has sort of any stake in her business or her brand could possibly influence her. Now, obviously, these people are, are more influential when artists are younger and less established, right? Once an artist sort of gains her following, she's able to sort of call more of her shots. 
Then if you look at the other side of the diamonds, you have the audience and that's us. We get trained, right? To expect pop stars to look and act and sound a certain way, which is why when you have sort of uh, Adele sort of breaking into the market, like people are like, she doesn't look like a pop star. And, you know, other people have sort of spoken back to that saying, well, like what? Like when did it become that every pop star is supposed to look like Britney Spears? And you have people like Aretha Franklin saying, hey, I was at my best, you know, singing weight when I was like 188 pounds, right? So we get these sort of cultural images of what pop stardom looks like. And then, you know, we're confused when when someone seems to sort of contradict that. So the audience also uh, has some influence on what the sort of cultural object, which is the fourth point on the diamond, the the pop star ends up being. So as a cultural object, Christina Aguilera uh, looks at all of these things that sort of reinforce each other, but don't cause each other and figures out what kind of pop star she's going to be, right? Which gets to your question of agency a little bit uh, that we talked about before, um, which is, you know, what if a pop star sort of wants to bring herself to market in a hypersexualized way? Like, do people get upset about objectification in the same way if this is something that's coming from her? And I think the cultural diamonds answer to that would be, it's hard to really know what a person wants from the inside when all of these forces, these external forces, are sort of shaping how you even build your image from the beginning. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So that was a beautiful depiction. And uh, what I'm going to do is in the show notes, I'll put a reference so that listeners who are interested can can reference the cultural diamond. So you talked about the four points being the social world. And then there's the creator, which is kind of the industry players, as you said, then there's the receiver, which is the in this case, the music consumers, the listeners, the, the participants, I guess. And then the fourth point is the cultural object, which is in this case, the female artist, the pop star herself. And you mentioned how as a pop star becomes more established, as they have more of a following, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not using your exact words here, but you said they may come to have some more power so that they can be more influential, I guess, in their negotiations with the creators or the players. And it reminded me of, we were talking before we pressed record here, about your TEDx talk, which I will also leave a link to in the show notes. It's a fantastic talk. And you talk about power and objectification. And it, it occurred to me that these are related. Those with less power may be objectified, right? But then again, the artists may seek to be objectified because maybe that's how the players make them. So can you talk about a little bit about power yeah. and objectification? I mean, it's, it's so hard. And, you know, ultimately, I, I obviously want women artists to be able to present themselves to the world in the way that feels, you know, real and comfortable to them, right? I think where I started getting bothered by the patterns was if there's only way one way to sort of get to the top and succeed, then I think there's a problem. And also, so many of these artists start so young And I think what that makes me think about is the fact that you haven't really established your own identity yet. And then you're being coached like toward these goals or toward these other types of artist positions that may not be where you would have gone yourself if you had been given time to sort of develop your identity on your own. You're sort of shaped into a mold. And these molds look a lot alike in a lot of cases and really center the body and costumes and dancing and, you know, these kind of things more than um, some of those artists might like, right? So, you know, it's tricky. You you can't ever really say, well, this artist wanted this or this person told this artist to do this. I don't think it's that simple. I think it's all those surrounding factors in the cultural diamond influencing what you think your best choice or your best move or your best 
personal presentation might be. Right. So it's like they're mutually reinforcing. They're, yes. All the arrows are pointing in all directions to and from all of the points of the diamond. Absolutely. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention things like early sort of Britney Spears and Mandy Moore videos were directed by a literal porn director, <laughs> Gregory Dark. Right. right? So, so these influences, like they're, they're not accidental. And so when that's encoded in teenage pop star DNA, that matures in different ways for, for lack of a better word. So let's get into the maturity, I guess, the life cycle of pop stars, which is one of the main contributions of your book, which I absolutely devoured. Can you describe the pop star life cycle? So I can tell you the intent of the life cycle model for popular women music stars The intent of it was to show that there were very enduring patterns of representation for women who were granted permission in various ways to be or remain at the top of the music industry. That there was sort of a reason for me that most of my favorite artists never made it beyond the indie level, like the indie star level. So there are plenty of men who I would argue had been indie stars who sort of flipped over into being very, very popular musicians. But I was realizing that this didn't really happen with women. I was trying to figure out whether it was a marketing problem. I started to realize that part of it was that the way they were packaged courted a certain type of audience and maybe put off another kind of audience. So this was just my way of trying to say, I think this is the way the game is, you know, and I would like to record that. And I would like to talk about like how we could possibly change and expand this over time. And I think it has started to change and expand over time, which is good. And I can tell you where, where those things sort of happen. Normally you start in a phase that I call the good girl. And that is, you know, sort of the girl next door, the girl, you know, people want to bring home to mom. She's not objectionable. She's she's heteronormatively pretty and nobody is really concerned about her behavior or her aggressive views or anything like that, right? Think about someone like Megan Trainer, right? <laughs> Might be a good example now, though, though most, most of the top stars have gone through this in some uh, variety or other over time. Then you segue into becoming a temptress, right? And so the good girl, the temptress is probably most visible when somebody starts as an artist, you know, who becomes prominent when they're 15 and then they reach the age of consent, right? And then they become the temptress because now it's safe. Or Billie Eilish challenges that a little because she's maybe a temptress a little bit under the age of consent. That's another thing that I think makes her differently provocative. Once you hit temptress phase, the, the songs and the costumes, like all these things become more about like sexual availability and the body and sexual appeal and so on and so forth, right? So you're moving away from this unobjectionable girl next door into this sort of, you know, temptress type position. And then you get to the middle of the model. And obviously you can't remain either a good girl or a temptress forever. And that's why you see uh, female pop stars sort of changing their images so often is that you need to remain dynamic, but dynamic within the parameters of these different categories. And the example that comes to mind for me is Madonna. Sure, right? People say, Madonna completely reinvented herself every six months. And I'm like, she didn't. Like, she had an overarching brand theme, right? So you could say that her overarching brand theme was something like, you know, sexual playfulness and provocation or something like that. So the way that she communicated that changed many, many, many times, right? But 
I would say that the reason that we were able to sort of track her brand was that she had a very meta level brand theme. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it's brilliant marketing is what it is, right? Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we see, and we see that alive and well in, in Beyonce and plenty of other stars as well. It's a, it's a very successful strategy. As long as you don't sacrifice that overarching brand theme and confuse people, right? Or make people feel like you've betrayed the brand that they sort of committed to, right? Because these brands sort of feel like relationships as our friend, you know, Susan Fournier has pointed yeah. out pointed out uh, very eloquently in her research. So then you get to the middle of the life cycle model and you have some people who are like, okay, my ego needs to have been met. I'm going to change my focus. I'm not going to be a pop star anymore. I'm going to do something else. So some people go into advocacy work. Some people make lateral moves into television or film, but people are just sort of like this. Maybe I don't like the terms of this game and I have the talent to do other things. So I'm going to do that. Somebody like Queen Latifah, right? Who goes on, goes and becomes a film star and then also becomes like a television talk show host and a cover girl spokesperson and so on would be an example of that. So they're going multimedia, basically. Sure. I would say becoming more of a general purpose celebrity than someone who's known as a pop star, right? So then we have the diva, which is one of the coveted categories, right? This is where the way that I'm operationalizing diva might be different than the way others think of the term, but I'm just saying you're sort of a best-in-class singer or musician, Mm -hmm. and what this entitles you to is to be covered more for your singing or musicianship than your body, your boyfriend, your accessories, and your dresses, and so on, right? So, So this is like one of the rare moments in the pop star life cycle where we actually talk about about the thing that you're essentially meant to be doing as a musician, which is depressing, but at least good that this category exists. All of these terms are things that came out of my research. So in interviews with people, they were referring to talent in this way. These are the terms used to talk about human talent in the music industry. And I thought, I have a choice. I can either sanitize that language as an academic or I can show the industry as it is. And as I said earlier, I really wanted to show the industry as it is. So these terms that I'm using are not my terms. These are terms that arose in these interviews. This is what you heard. Yes, this is what I heard, and that's why I retain them. So this next category uh, is called whore, and this sort of is operationalized in two different ways. Again, uh, coming out in themes in the interviews, the first is that this person would do anything for money, and it sort of shows in her performance. And the other is just that we take the temptress a little too far, and so everything is about sex, right? And so like your entire image is about sex. There's another category called exotic, which is meant to be enclosed in finger quotes. And this sort of disgustingly means that we don't quite know where you fit into our normal pop star template. And it it often means that you're not from the United States. It often means that you're not white because we just don't know what to do with you. So it's sort of a catch-all category. Then we have the provocateur And this is another sort of coveted category because these are the people who just push our cultural buttons, right? And they're probably known more for that than for anything else. So certainly Beyonce has done this. Certainly Miley Cyrus has done this at different points. They're asking us to think about different things. They're asking us to think about what it means to be a black woman in contemporary culture it's asking us to think about what it means to be pansexual and genderqueer at a time that people had no idea what those terms meant, right? So, you know, both of them obviously received a lot of attention and a lot of praise and a lot of a lot of respect. Uh, for I, doing I was just going to say, by definition, if you're a provocateur, you are probably polarizing, mm-hmm. which would increase your PR. Absolutely. And, you know, but it, it becomes precarious in sort of cancel culture too, right? Because now, you know, we're seeing all kinds of stars having things decontextual 
hospitalized and then canceled. There's not even a discussion around recovery. Um, I've written about that elsewhere, certainly like in the, the queer community. I read that in one of the papers that you wrote. It was yeah. like they were rejected for not being queer enough yeah. or not doing it properly, as you said. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you're going to be out there as a provocateur, there are a lot of forces like wanting to cancel you. You know, some of it probably deserved in different ways and, and some of it probably not at all deserved and fueled by by hatred. Then we have this category called the hot mess, which is, you know, probably the worst of the named categories. But, you know, if you think about when I started doing this work, that so my dissertation, I finished it in 2007, and this was a word that everyone was tossing around. And so the hot mess was a category that captured the star sort of out of control, who was being covered more for her counter-normative behavior than anything else, right? So think about like Amy Winehouse or somebody like that. And I think we've become culturally a lot, a lot more sensitive to what women struggle with, right, in daily life now in, in 2020. But in 2007, we weren't as savvy about that. We didn't have Me Too and Time's Up and all these different things forcing this cultural conversation. So in 2007, it was still like, hey, why is this woman out of control? Ha ha ha. One of my respondents said, I remember like when they act like clowns, people laugh. But, you know, as I started to unpack that over time, I'm like, wow, but like there's a lot behind what's making people act like that. And we're not, we had not yet uh, reach the point where we could ask more empathetic questions about what might be driving that behavior. Is it a mental health issue? Is it an addiction problem? Is it has somebody experienced trauma? Is it all of these things maybe coming together and making somebody act out? Like, and maybe we should be like, hey, let's get her help. Let's not laugh at her, right? So that has happened over time, right? So when the second edition of my book came out, I was able to write a lot about that, right? Because I think artists started owning these narratives and explaining sort of what was going on. And then, you know, most reasonable human beings don't want to laugh at someone when you've heard the backstory, right? And so people like Demi Lovato, who we spoke about earlier, has sort of taken those struggles and explained her journey through them and emerged as sort of triumphant. And I think at this cultural moment, that is a really powerful position that I think resonates with a lot of people who feel that way themselves. Yeah, and I just want to point out for the listeners, what you're describing implicitly here goes back to the cultural diamond, where at certain points in time, there were certain templates, as you called them, or perhaps archetypes that would be fulfilled by these female pop stars. Sometimes there was no other terminology available for it. But then because of what they did, you could think about the influence that they then had on the social world or on society. And maybe it's partly because of them that some of these changes have happened. That's right. And and so literally between the first edition in 2013 and the second edition, I added this category called Survivor people started this conversation about like, hey, hey, that's not nice. I mean, it's it's even back to, you know, the leave Britney alone video kind of thing. That was that predated this, right? But more people got on that bus like saying, hey, there's a human behind this pop star facade. They build brands to sort of protect themselves in different ways, which is actually smart. Like, would you want to be a completely vulnerable human self in public when people are looking to criticize you from every possible dimension, right? But those people who sort of showed too much of their human selves got really punished for it. So there's this sort of interesting reclamation of now if you're sharing your human self, you're getting celebrated for it, right? But there's a tension between is that sustainable? Is that ultimately healthy for a human to to be so personally exposed in public? And so I think that's sort of our next question to answer is like, how do we manage identity publicly, right? And like, what parts of ourselves do we sort of share with audiences? Like, and what parts of ourselves should we keep private, right? Um, so that that's related to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is how strategic are female pop stars, I guess, and their handlers in terms of 
of managing their way through the life cycle. And this is sort of given that they are all managing their quote-unquote brand. Are they actually thinking about a longer-term life cycle or are they thinking, here's what the brand is? You know, I don't even know that they're thinking that's what the brand is. Like, really? I, think, I think you have people managing these careers in all in all different kinds of ways. I mean, a lot of people, what was, what was fascinating to me in the interviews was that so many people said, I loved having the time to actually think about what I do. Like, I don't think about what I do. I sort of go on instinct. Uh. A lot of us are like that, right? There, you know, certainly many jobs don't give us any time for introspection. You might look at past patterns of success to predict future patterns of success, which is flawed in many ways, right? right. But you do it, right? So you go like, oh, this artist is kind of sort of like pink, so we're going to bring her to market in this way, right? So you have instincts around what succeeded before you that sort of like you. And I think you repeat those things unconsciously. So I, I really enjoyed the process of talking through that with these respondents who I, you know, I selected them because I thought they were incredibly good at what they did. And also like, you know, I remember my dissertation advisor being like, my God, like your respondents have PhDs in the music industry. And that's a great way to put it. They know the ins and outs of this, right? But they're not academic and they're not necessarily speaking in brand terms or communication terms or theoretical model terms. They're doing their job. That is fascinating. But I have to ask you, have you had any direct feedback from anyone? Yeah, I've definitely had feedback from artists and artist managers in particular. Like artists saying, my God, like I knew something was fucked up, but I didn't realize it was this fucked up kind of thing. Uh, you know, thank you for writing that so that I could understand that it wasn't just my experience. This is, you know, this is something that happens. And artist managers I've had say, I'm so happy to have your book because I, I don't know how to explain this industry to like my young female artists and now I can just sort of give your book to them and, and that's obviously amazing feedback and that I is, love it. Uh, I, I love that. What it, The ultimate compliment I think is that the handlers are giving the book to their female pop stars and I mean ultimately it's not just that you're influencing them but you're actually telling them to be more strategic and thinking longer term and harder and in a different way about what they're doing and why they're doing it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's up to them how to use the information, right? I'd, I'd say that being uh, not so self-congratulatory, they could just as easily use it to say, I need to learn how to adhere to one of these types to succeed, right? And that, that isn't my intent. But like, let's say that somebody changes their image 10% so that they can approximate one of these things and have a much wider audience than they would have otherwise, I guess that would be successful for her, right? right. So I think and or if she was more authentic, it sounds like like you're advocating for authenticity. Is that true? It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's almost like managed authenticity. I think there are things that are true about all of us in multiple contexts, right? So I might be one way as a professor. I might be another way with my family. I might be another way uh, when I'm out with my oldest friends. And I might be another way when I'm at an academic conference, right? But there are some things about me that are going to be the same in all of those contexts. And I think that when we talk about um, brands, what we want is that sort of overarching brand theme that is true about us or them in all contexts. And that way, they're not caught in hypocritical sort of tangles. They read like their authentic selves, and we're not catching them in contradictions because they're, they're being their authentic selves, but they're not being like their complete vulnerable authentic selves because I think for pop star sustainability, I want them to have healthy lives with degrees of privacy and people taking care of them and people thinking about their well-being and not how much money they can make off of them before the window slams shut on their career kind of thing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And as you're saying that, I'm just thinking this is great advice 
for any of us. And and your point about you being an academic and all the different circles that you navigate, I guess this is kind of the ultimate question in terms of communication and the way we represent ourselves. My question is, why do women seem to repeatedly get framed in the same way? And I'm thinking about the temptress archetype in particular, yeah. again and again, be it as you've very eloquently described with a pop star or in our quote unquote real life. What's, what's been interesting is the conversations I've had with other scholars over the years about this, like people whose work that I've really liked. And, you know, they've pointed out to me that your life cycle model like has like mythological origins, religious origins, these patterns that you're seeing these types grow out of vast sociological dysfunction with regard to the way we see and process women, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think this is a, a music industry problem so much. I mean, that's what I've chosen to focus on. But I think it's just a representation of cultural dysfunction, like as it manifests in an industry. Wow. It's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is. And I know that it's so horrifying that I just wanted to tell other people what I found because I want I want people to be horrified by it. And I want them to destroy my model so that I can never write another edition of my book. Right. I really want this to change. I want and I think, you know, there are all kinds of indicators now of change more, I would argue, in film and television than in popular music just yet. But there are definitely rays of hope, like even watching female pleasure as opposed to female performance for the sake of men, a move away from very like strict sort of male gaze terms to more empathetically creating and viewing sort of women as they pursue their desires. Uh, well, thank you for taking a topic that I, I think some people can dismiss it because it's pop star, right? It's like pop culture. It's so easily dismissed, but it's actually really, really important. It's a really important node in the cultural diamond. So I want to thank you. Is there anything else you want to add before we move on to the five rapid fire questions? One thing related to what you just said, I, I think you're absolutely right. When a woman musician sells or streams or becomes culturally persuasive enough we designate her a pop star, right? Her genre disappears, right? This doesn't happen to men. So one of the reasons culturally she ends up a pop star is that this sort of disempowers her because it makes her sound frivolous or artificial or fleeting, right? Just what you said about pop. Like, we, we dismiss that, right? A rock star is different, but we don't see many women rock stars at the top of the industry. Oh, gosh, my blood is boiling. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the five rapid fire questions that I ask every guest. Are you ready? I, I think so. Number one, what are your pet peeves? My pet peeve is people who cut in line. I'm like, we're all busy. We all have to do this. Get in line. Think this sort of like entitlement around like, my time is more important than yours. I'm just going to get ahead of you. I, I hate that. I am with you on that. Okay, second question. What type of learner are you? I think it depends on what I'm learning. I don't know how to answer that question. I think I use all of those things to learn. Well, most of us do. Yeah. Okay, question number three. Introvert or extrovert? Ambivert. I, I've trained my introverted self to be an extrovert, to do the things that I've wanted to do professionally. And you've done very well. I saw you on stage uh, in your TEDx talk. That was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. <laughs> oh, really? You'd never know. Yes. And again, I'm going to leave a link for that. 
Okay, question number four. Communication preference for personal conversations. Depends on the content, right? Like if I'm confirming a, a reservation text, we don't need to talk about that. If we're like talking about something of substance, like I would much rather see you or talk to you on the phone. Okay, last question. Is there a podcast, a blog, or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most? No. <laughs> <laughs> It's rapid fire, right? You wanted like, I mean, should I think about that? I just, I consume so much. I don't, I don't necessarily go back to the same things again and again and again. I think I sort of consume just in a, in a different and more like organic to me way. Got it. All right. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. all of your research and your knowledge yeah. about female pop stars. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your interest in this work too. Thank you so much. Okay. What a cool topic to study, right? Thanks so much to Kristen for sharing her expertise and for making us think about pop stars and pop culture in a more disciplined way. Again, if you want to read her book or watch her TEDx talk, there are links to both of these in the show notes. Kristen made a comment at the beginning of the interview that really resonated with me. She said, Reasonable people can disagree about whether this is autobiography or a performance, or perhaps a mixture of both. Then later, in a related comment, she highlighted that, quote, if you're sharing your human self, you're going to be celebrated for it. But there's a tension between, is that sustainable? Is that ultimately healthy for a human to be so personally exposed in public? And so I think that's our next question to answer. How do we manage identity publicly? What parts of ourselves do we share with audiences? And what parts of ourselves should we keep private? Well, Kristen, I agree. I think that's a fascinating question, not just for pop stars, but for all of us. Okay, let me now summarize with three brief takeaways. One, the cultural diamond. Two, the observation that only a subset of archetypes are available in a given context. And three, that beings can credulously embody different archetypes over time or even at one time across our various roles as long as we maintain a consistent overarching theme. Okay, the first takeaway, the cultural diamond. This is the framework developed by sociologist Wendy Griswold. If you're a visual learner like me, an illustration of a model like this helps immensely. If you check out the Talk About Talk show notes, there's a depiction of this framework there. But let me briefly describe it to you now. The cultural diamond is a framework with four points or nodes, kind of like a baseball diamond. The first node is the social world. That's the time and place, like, say, the U.S. in the year 2018, when Kristen published her most recent book. The second node is called a cultural object. In this case, it's the female artist, the pop star. Let's say Billie Eilish. The third node is called the creator. This would be Billie Eilish's producer or handler. Last, the fourth node is the audience or receiver. That's us, the consumers. So each of these four nodes has arrows going two ways, to and from each of the three other nodes. Like the path going around a baseball diamond, only the paths go in both directions. And the nodes can also run across a diamond, like to and from first and third base, and to and from second base and home plate. Now can you picture it? So all four of these nodes or entities are affecting and being affected by each other. The social world, the cultural object, the creator, and the audience. This cultural diamond is an effective way, a framework, to help us consider various entities in culture, be it a player in a particular industry, say, Billie Eilish in the U.S. in the year 2018, or a brand in a particular marketplace. 
In the context of this cultural diamond then, the second key learning that I want to highlight is that only certain archetypes are available for cultural objects to embody, such as female pop stars or, say, young black men in America, given the state of the other three nodes, and particularly the social world, the time and place. In other words, of all of the archetypes that exist, there is a limited subset of these archetypes that are available in a given context. So in the last episode, we spent lots of time focusing on the hero archetype and going through the stages of the hero's journey. I noted that it's tougher to think of female heroes than male heroes. That said, slowly more female heroes are making themselves known. Think of recent female on-screen heroes, including Katniss in The Hunger Games, Rey in Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Carrie Matheson in Homeland. I was also thinking about my conversation with Professor Jerry Zaltman in a previous Talk About Talk podcast focused on storytelling. He talks about the three archetypes that are most commonly or typically available to women being the nurturer, the witch, and the prostitute. When I asked Jerry whether these archetypes might change as the status of women evolves, particularly with the hashtag MeToo movement, he replied that the archetypes themselves don't change, but that the specific archetypes available to female characters may change. This is exactly the point here. And this is one of the transformations in the pop star industry that prompted Kristen Lieb to update her 2013 book called Gender, Branding, and the Modern Music Industry, just five short years later. It wasn't just the people, the pop stars, who'd changed. By the way, on the cover of the 2013 first edition of the book, there's pictures of Madonna and Lady Gaga on the front. Five years later, for the second edition, it's Beyonce and Miley Cyrus. Of course the pop stars change rapidly. It's pop music after all. But interestingly, between 2013 and 2018, when she published the second edition, a new archetype, namely the survivor, appeared. Kristen highlights in her book how many female pop stars face all sorts of challenges and traumas, from addictions, to sexual assault, to losing loved ones, to psychological breakdowns. Pop stars such as Britney Spears, Lady Gaga, Demi Lovato, and many others have gone through these trials. Now, the ones who openly share their trials with the public, instead of sanitizing them with PR spin, they're the ones who come out as survivors. But this survivor archetype wasn't as available previously, or we could say, in our past social world. This transformation of an individual over time from one archetype to another leads us to the third key learning for this episode, which is that beings, be they pop stars or brand, or each of us as an individual, can credulously inhabit or embody different archetypes over time, as in the life cycle of a pop star, or even at one time across our various roles, as long as we maintain a consistent, overarching meta-theme. As Kristen said, you can't remain either a good girl or even a temptress forever, and that's why you see female pop stars changing their images so often. You need to remain dynamic, but dynamic within the parameters of these different categories. We talked about Madonna doing this, but believably. Kristen said the reason we were able to track Madonna's brand is that she had a consistent, meta-level brand theme. This is beautifully articulated in the research of brand guru Professor Susan Fournier, whom Kristen mentioned, and whom I had the great privilege of working for as her research associate. I've included links to a few of Susan Fournier's seminal papers in the show notes. Seminal, as in cited almost 10,000 times. So Fournier examines consumers' relationships with brands, including how they may feel like they've been betrayed by the brands that they were most loyal to, 
when they perceive inconsistencies, transgressions committed by a brand that the consumer considered to be a trusted friend or a partner. Susan Fournier's brand research also covers multivocality, which is relevant to this last key learning. In her research, she demonstrates how brands can speak with many voices, multivocality, just like we as people can navigate different worlds, different roles, or even archetypes in our lives as a scholar, a mother, an athlete, a wife, a friend, and so on. Again, we can credulously serve in all of these capacities with varying qualities, as long as there's a consistent, cohesive meta-theme to connect them. I'm thinking this may be where authenticity comes in. Does that make sense? So, there you are. Three of the key learnings from this episode, which again, you can find in the show notes on the talkabouttalk.com website. There's one, the cultural diamond. Two, the observation that only a subset of archetypes are available in a given context for a given time and place. And three, that beings can credulously embody different archetypes over time or even at one time across our various roles, as long as we maintain a consistent overarching theme. I leave you now with one last thought to sum up this two-episode mini-series on archetypes. Kristen said that she received a common comment from the pop star industry insiders that she interviewed. It was something like this. I loved having the time to actually think about what I do. I don't think about what I do. I go on instinct. A lot of us are like that. You know, certainly many jobs don't give us any time for introspection. You might look at past patterns of success to predict future patterns of success which is flawed in so many ways, but you do it. Did you catch that? Patterns of success. It's about patterns. And archetypes are universal patterns. They're innate ways of thinking. We apply archetypes to people, to characters, and to stories without even thinking about it. That's why archetypes resonate. And that's why I hope you now feel better equipped to consciously consider how you can leverage archetypes in your business, in your brand building, and even in how you manage your career. All right, that's it for this episode. Except to say, I really hope you'll sign up for the weekly blog if you're not signed up already. This Talk About Talk blog is like getting free communication skills coaching delivered every week directly to your inbox. I want to help you become a more skilled communicator to get you noticed for the right reasons and to get you promoted. Just go to the talkabouttalk.com website or email me directly and I'll add you to the list. As always, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Any ideas you have for future episodes or anything else, you can email me anytime at andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Thanks for listening and talk soon.